Please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, and this morning we are in chapter 4. Ephesians 4, and we'll be looking at verses 7 through 16. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Please give it your full attention. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you're not a fan of superhero movies, just bear with me for a moment. I need to give a bit of a critique on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the MCU as they call it. There's a problem. It's not the multiverse. The multiverse is definitely a problem. <laughs> the problem I see is that one of the newest characters they've entered into the superhero movies, that character is too powerful. The appeal of the early Avengers movies was that all the superheroes had different skills, different abilities, different powers. Iron Man was the brilliant scientist, engineer. Captain America was the courageous leader. The Hulk was known for his brute strength, his indestructibility. Hawkeye could do amazing things with bow and arrow. And Ant-Man could get very large or very small. One of the kids from the first service chastised me because I didn't include Spider-Man. So I will include Spider-Man. He also was very important to the Avengers. <laughs> but as they combined all of their wildly, wild variety of abilities and powers, even though the villains would be too powerful for any one or even a couple of them to defeat, if they combined all their abilities and powers, they could defeat these villains, and save humanity. Well, that was true until Thanos came along in the movie uh, Infinity War. Thanos was too powerful for the Avengers. And at the end of that movie, the Avengers were defeated. Half of the population of the universe was destroyed. Things seemed lost. But in the second movie, we're introduced to a new superhero, Captain Marvel. She was a young woman who was given the powers that were even greater. As the movie plays out, you find out she was even great, not only greater than all of the Avengers, but 
a power that was greater even than Thanos itself. They could not have beaten Thanos without Captain Marvel. So all that's background to an article I read this week about the upcoming movie. There's a new Captain Marvel movie come out, coming out. What the article said, Captain Marvel will be stronger in Captain Marvel 2, which poses a massive problem for the next Avengers movie. It will not only be hard to find a villain that would be a match for Captain Marvel, but it will also negate the need for a team of Avengers. Well, what's that have to do with Ephesians 4? <laughs> there is a connection. I think a lot of churches are hoping for a Captain Marvel to come in. A superhero pastor that'll come in and make the church grow. As we study Ephesians 4, we're going to see that it has nothing to do with God's plan for growing the church. We'll see in a moment, pastors do have an important role. But the point of Ephesians 4 is that all of you have an important role. That the church is not only a team where every member is important, but it's like a body. The ultimate teamwork of the body. In the beginning of Ephesians 4, we saw that the theme of this chapter is the unity of the church. Now, of course, as we said a couple of weeks ago, that's not the unity of the visible church, the man, you know, the, 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 the church as we see it from a horizontal perspective, the organizational church. We don't see unity there. We see tons of division. But as God looks at the church, as we saw a couple weeks ago, as God looks at the church, the true church, those who truly believe, we are one. Even though we don't act like it sometimes. We looked at the first six verses two weeks ago. We saw that there is a, an exhortation there, a charge to all believers to be eager to maintain the unity of the body and the bond of peace. And he goes on to say we are to eagerly strive for that even though in the eyes of God we are already one body. We are one body indwelt by one Holy Spirit. We have one hope, one Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. In God's eyes we are one. But because we are sinners and we still live in a fallen world, we have to strive to maintain that unity that we already possess in the eyes of God. Well, here in verses 7 to 16, Paul shows us that the growth of the church depends on that unity. A divided church cannot grow, but we are called to grow, and that's what's clear in this passage. We are called to grow, and it de we depend upon that unity that's described in the first six verses. But what's striking about this passage where Paul talks about the unity that we're to strive for, what he stresses here is that that unity comes through diversity, not uniformity. God in the church of Jesus Christ is not creating clones of one another. He creates an amazing variety of saints who we look different, we come from different backgrounds, we have different personalities, we have different gifts, and that's the focus of this passage, is the different gifts that we are given, and we are to look to Christ, the head of the body, to orchestrate all those gifts so that we do operate in a unified manner that will bring about the growth of the church. 
Christ gives us different gifts and abilities and then combines and orchestrates our differences in complementary ways to make the whole body greater than the sum of its parts. Paul uses here, as I've already mentioned, one of his favorite metaphors. I'd probably say it's his favorite metaphor because not only does he use this metaphor multiple times in the New Testament, but he, every time he talks about it, he goes into great length in explaining it. And that's the metaphor of the church being like a body, a human body. Really, in many ways, God's greatest creation. We talked about not only the complexity and, and, and abilities of the human body, but the fact that it has a soul, that we have a soul that, that combines with our body to create who we are. And, God, and Paul uses this as a metaphor to say this is like the church. The church is like a body that's inhabited and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. What I did in the first six verses, I want to do here again. I want to kind of skip to the end of the, the passage first and then go back and look at the beginning. And the purpose for that is because I think the end of it shows us what the goal is. It helps us to stay focused on why we work to maintain this unity. Why are we, what's it about? What's, what's our goal? What are we working towards? Well, let me ask you this question. When you look at a human, look at another person, how do you determine if that person's healthy or not? Do you measure their height? Is a person who's six foot eight inherently more healthy than a person who's five foot two? Obviously not. We don't measure the health of a human by how tall it is or how wide it is, and the church shouldn't be measured that way either. A church of a thousand members is not necessarily more healthy than a church of hundred members. Matter of fact, I have been around some churches of 50 members that are far more healthy than church of 10,000 or 20,000 members. It's not about size, but that's how we Americans want to measure our churches. And so we used of that idea to begin with. In verse 13, Paul says that the goal of the church growth is mature manhood. He doesn't mean manhood in the sense of manhood versus womanhood. He's just talking about the mature man. That's how we measure a body that is fully, we're talking about a human body that is fully developed. It's reached its peak of development. The goal of every human body is to reach that state of perfect development. And so he says the church growth is to do that spiritually speaking, to reach the stage of full development, being fully healthy. Well, what does it look like? Well, Paul goes on to say, he equates it with the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does spiritual maturity look like in a church or in the church? It looks like Christ. It's Christ-likeness. A fellowship of believers that exhibit the mind, heart, and character of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's mature humanhood that Paul's talking about here. church that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, therefore exhibits the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which are the characteristics of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and a church that loves each other well and integrates well together. That's the goal of full maturity. In verse 14, Paul says that a mature church needs to outgrow its childish ways. He says, so that we may no longer be children. Now, it's interesting he says that because Jesus, when he talked about children, was talking about children in a positive sense. 
he took a child and set him among the people he was teaching one day and said, you need to be like this child. And in that context, he's saying, you need the faith of a child. You need the simple trust and dependency of a child. But here, Paul is talking about the negative aspects of children as we know them as sinners, which is that children are naive, children are gullible, children are easily led astray, children are vulnerable because they're early in their development. And so if the church is going to become mature, it needs to become adult in that sense, no longer childish. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I left behind my childish ways. The next verse, Paul changes the metaphor from childishness and adult, uh, uh, fully developed adult. He changes the metaphor to a maritime metaphor. He says, he compares it to a boat that, or a ship that's being tossed to and fro by the wind and waves in a violent storm. Paul knew what it was like to be on a ship that was tossed to and fro by a violent storm. That's what Acts 27 is about. He knew what it was to be in a shipwreck because of a violent storm. He says that's what churches are like if they're immature, if they're childish, if they're not mature in their faith, if they're not unified in the faith. Every church, every true church, is battered by the winds of false doctrine day in and day out. We're surrounded by it. In the culture, we're surrounded by it even among other churches that teach false doctrine. There is this constant pressure on us to conform to the culture around us. Fortunately, we see many churches that give in to that pressure, that intense pressure to conform to the world. You may have seen this week, there was a viral video that went around. It was a clip from a sermon, if you could call it that, by a preacher, if you could call her that. She preached this sermon and she was trying to explain the beginning of the book of Genesis, but she says that in that story of what happened in the Garden of Eden is that God lied to Adam and Eve. God lied to Adam and Eve by telling them that they would die if they ate of the fruit. And Satan told them the truth. Satan said, you will know the difference between good and evil when you become like God. That was the truth. And Eve is the hero of the story because she believed Satan and ate the fruit and asserted her freedom of choice, asserted her autonomy. She became wise. It turns that, that whole part of scripture totally on its head and teaches the exact opposite of what that passage is teaching. But she said, we need to reinterpret the Bible. That's the kind of winds of false doctrine that beat against the church every day, trying to get the church to preach the same false gospel that the culture is teaching. Growing the church to maturity is something that Christ is doing every day. Christ sees the true church, the, the invisible church, and he's growing it to maturity every day. It's hard to see it from a human perspective much of the time, but he is growing his church. And Jesus is the ultimate superhero, infinitely far greater than Marvel or any other Avenger. He has all power. He can affect the church today if he wanted to. And the great promise of Scripture is that one day he will. 
but not yet. He has a purpose and a plan. He's very patient with we, us as sinners, redeemed sinners that make up the church as he grows us to maturity together. Well, what do we need to know about our role? What's interesting is that Christ has chosen, doesn't seem like a good plan to me, but he knows far better than I do. He's chosen to work through you and me to build the church toward maturity. He chooses to us to bring about the great goal of bringing the church to full development and maturity. So what do we need to know about our role in it? Well, I said, Romans 12, he goes on at length talking about the gifts that are given to the church, the spiritual gifts that are given to the church for this very purpose. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he talks about the gifts that are given to the church for this very purpose. And that's what he's talking about here in Ephesians 4. And so the first point you need to learn from what Paul says here is that every believer is gifted. Now, that sounds like a, a very elementary and simplistic point to make, but some of you don't believe it. Because I've heard Christians say, I'm not gifted. I don't have anything to offer the church. If you say that, you're denying what Paul says here. Every Christian, true Christian, is gifted by Christ. Verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul repeats the message in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. No one can claim to be without spiritual gifts for service to the church. No one can claim that. No one here who believes in Christ. If you were able to go into the files of the session, the elders who lead this church, you would find a file labeled inactive members. And that the people's names that are on that list are people who no longer attend here, no longer worship here, no longer serve here, either because they've just gone away or moved away or whatever, but they are not active in our midst. They don't, they're not here on Sunday. They're not here during the week. So we, until they transfer their membership to another church, we put them on a list of inactive members. In some churches, that list is very, very long. I remember when I was a kid, I heard about a church that had about 50 people and it had about 900 people on their membership list. That's 850 inactive members by that definition. But here, we purposely keep that list very short. There should not be many names on that list and they should always be just in transition from membership in one church to always actively in transition because the, the, the label inactive member is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms according to what Paul teaches. You cannot be an inactive member. You must be active to be healthy as a member. That's the calling. That's the point that he makes. Every believer is gifted. And the problem is that, unfortunately, as long as the church is still operating in a fallen world with full of sinners, we are going to have inactive members. Every church has inactive members who show up for church on Sunday, but they don't really do anything else. Now, that may just be because they want to be passive, but Long, long term, that's not healthy. That's not what you're created for. That's not what you're gifted for. What are you using your gift for if you're not active in the work of the church? And unfortunately, inactive members who are actively involved or who are, who are attending but not actively involved, inactive members tend to actually hurt the church because inactive members are the ones more often than not that are criticizing the active members. They're sitting on the sidelines and saying, I don't like the way this is done. 
And that's what inactivity does, is it makes you discontent. It makes you, you know, it makes you want to criticize. So that's the danger. I mean, it's a serious thing to be an inactive member. And it shouldn't be. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I like that in the original language, the word varied literally means multicolored. In other words, God's grace has a wonderful variety to it. The gifts that he gives have a wonderful variety. And that's God's intention. It's that all those variety of gifts work together for one purpose. To build the church up to adult, spiritually adulthood. That's the purpose of the gifts that he gives to the church. No matter who receives them or how many they receive. I was able to sit in on just the end of the choir practice this week here at church. We have a group of about 20 to 30 people that are preparing for a choir for uh, the holiday services coming up soon. And I came in to pick up my wife. I wouldn't be there. You wouldn't want me in your choir. But I came to pick up my wife, and as I was listening from the back of the sanctuary, it was a beautiful sound. And it just struck me that this is, a, this is also a picture of the church. Multicolored, also you know, the, the, the way that God orchestrates in terms of music to bring the gifts of his church together. The people in that room all had different vocal ranges. They all had different tone to their singing. They all have different vibratos, whatever it is. All these different features to the way they sing, but they get brought together by a conductor to sound, make one beautiful sound. And that's a picture to me of the church and the multicolored grace that God has given to us. The church is beautiful when we harmonize like that. It's beautiful. The second point that Paul makes is that Christ is the one who earned and distributed your gift. Jesus is Lord. That's what you, when you become a Christian, that's the profession of faith you make. Jesus is Lord. And he is the Lord of the gifts that you have. He gave them to you, and he is sovereign over those gifts. He distributes them according to his will. The first point is, you didn't do anything to earn it. It's a gift. And yet, if he gives us abilities, he gives us gifts, it's so easy for us to pridefully take credit for them. To use them to exalt ourselves instead of to exalt Christ. But you need to remember it's a gift. It's given to you for the giver's purpose. He's the one who earned our gift. He's the one who distributes them as he chooses. He quotes Psalm 68 here. And the reason why he creates, quotes Psalm 68, that's in verse 8. The reason he quotes Psalm 68 is the point that Christ earned your gift. This is how he did it. Psalm 68 was a psalm that was sung during the Old Testament feast of Pentecost, which is interesting because Pentecost in the New Testament was the feast at which the Holy Spirit descended upon the church to empower the church. Well, here, Paul quotes Psalm 68 because Psalm 68, if you were to go back and read it, it talks about God going out like a king, and he uses kind of the imagery of a king going out to battle, his troops out to battle, God leaving his throne, going out to defeat his enemies. And having defeated his enemies, he returns to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to his people, whatever, to his throne. And as he returns, he comes with captives in train behind him, and with spoils from the victory. And uh, the people gather to celebrate his victory. There's a victory parade when he gets back to the city, his capital city. And that's the imagery. Well, it says God is going to do that. God 
going to go out and defeat the enemies of his and the enemies of his people, and he's going to return with captives in tow and spoils to the victory. Well, what Paul's really saying is that was Christ. Christ is the one who descended. He was on the throne as the Son of God. He descended to the lower regions, the earth, in his incarnation, in his humiliation. In the language of of, uh, Philippians 2, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he had to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What looked like defeat was actually the ultimate victory. That's where he defeated all of his enemies. And through his resurrection, he conquers sin, death, and the devil. And he ascends to the Father, ascends to his throne again, having descended. Now he ascends to his throne, leading in tow, in train behind him, captives that he has won, and the spoils of victory. The captives, some commentators say, well, that's the enemies that he's defeated, and they remain captive forever, in a sense. Other commentators, I think probably the better interpretation, say the captives are the redeemed people. They were captives of the enemy who have been freed, brought back to serve the king. But the spoils are the gifts. The spoils are the gifts that the conquering king. Now, I want you to notice that it's God in Psalm 68. It's Jesus here in Ephesians 4. Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He has defeated our enemies. And the gifts that he gives, it's really, it says in the Psalm 68, if you go back and look there, in the Old Testament, in, in the version that's in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament book of Psalms, it says that this king, this conquering king, received gifts from men. But Paul adapts it. He says, we're talking about Christ, and I want to make an additional point here. Yes, he did receive these gifts as a result of what he earned at the cross through the the resurrection and ascension, but he received them to give them for the purpose of giving them. And that's what a good king did. Bad kings, evil kings, would go out and defeat the enemies, but they would go home and put all their spoils and riches and wealth that they gained in they put it in their storehouse and keep it for themselves and make their palace more beautiful. Good kings would come back and share and distribute all the gifts they win in the victory to the people for their benefit. That's what a good king does, and Jesus is the greatest king. And so what he gained, what he won through his death, resurrection, and ascension is given to his people, given to us. He earned the gift that you have. Whatever gift you have, whatever set of gifts you have, Jesus earned them at the cross. He died for those gifts. And the plain truth is it's only redeemed, cleansed, reconciled, born-again people who can receive these spiritual gifts. So Christ had to make that possible. I say all this because, again, underlying the fact, those abilities that you have, skills, abilities, spiritual gifts you have, you didn't do anything to earn them. Christ did it. And understanding the cost that he paid for you to have those gifts will keep you humble. Because those gifts that you, op, that, you, that you work with, that you use to build up the church, they can appeal to your pride when you see success, when you see fruit. But remember, it's a gift that was given to you that Christ paid for with his own blood. And then just secondly, to underline that the gifts he gives, he's sovereign in the way he gives them. Christ chooses the gift or gifts that you will receive. 
an eye can't become an ear, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 12. An ear can't become a hand. Christ calls you to serve, and then he gifts you for that service. It's his choice. He is Lord. The world says to you, you be you. The world says to you, you can be anything you want to be. But the Christian says, I am called by Christ to serve him, and he has gifted me to serve in the way that he chooses. And that's what's best for me, and that's what's best for the church. The second point that Paul makes is that not only is every believer gifted, but the word gifts are the ones that are foundational for the church. I don't want to say they're the most important gifts, because I think every gift is important in Christ's plan for the work of the church. But the word gifts are foundational to the work of the church. If the word gifts are not given, any other gifts are, are a waste. They're foundational. It's interesting here in Ephesians 4, unlike Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Paul doesn't list the types of spiritual gifts. He lists people. A groups of people who are gifts of Christ to his church. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. The one thing that ties all these people together is that they all are primarily about proclaiming and teaching the word of God. Every one of those groups is about proclaiming and teaching the word of God. Apostles here, of course, means those that were, that, that were uh, witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. They knew Christ in the flesh. They were witnesses to his resurrection. And they were the ones, according to John 15 through 17, were given the special responsibility to give the written word of God to the church. The apostolic writings that we call the New Testament. The prophets were probably not referring to the Old Testament prophets because in Ephesians, Paul, when he talks about prophets in a couple of different places, he seems to be talking about New Testament prophets. And we know from the book of Acts, there were prophets who, who labored under the authority of the apostles and alongside of the apostles and they were given to the church early on to give verbal direction from God. Actually, they, they were inspired by God to give messages to the churches, but not added to scripture. But this was temporary because the church didn't yet have the scriptures. When the writings of the apostles were finally brought together and we were given the New Testament and the entire Bible, we didn't need prophets any longer. So the apostles and prophets, there's no need in the church for those today. There's no purpose for them in the church today. The word of God gives us the teaching of the apostles. But then Paul also mentions evangelists. And it's unclear what group of people he's talking about, the evangelists. Timothy and Philip are called evangelists in the New Testament. And from that, we guess that what Paul's referring to is that those who are called with the special gifts of evangelism, everybody's called to evangelize given some ability to evangelize but some people and we know this in our own experience in the church have the special ability to share the gospel with others they have a special passion for sharing the gospel they, they, they connect with people well they're evangelists they have the gift of evangelism that is beyond what we all share and so evangelists when you think of them today at least especially even in our book of church order for our denomination we call evangelists those who are church planters and missionaries they take the gospel to places where the gospel's not been heard or where it's not been, churches haven't been established. 
And then the last category is shepherds and teachers. And there's a reason in the original language why those two terms go together. The way it's put together linguistically, you can tell from the Greek language that it was intended to be one group of people. Those who are both shepherds and teachers, and of course what we're talking about is what the New Testament calls elsewhere the elders of the church. And those are the ongoing leaders of the churches, the elders, those who shepherd the people, watch over the flock, care for the flock, nurture the flock, protect the flock, the shepherds, the pastors, the elders of the church. And then teachers, all elders are teachers. Some teachers we call teaching elders because, like me, they have the special responsibility and training to proclaim the word of God, to preach the word. But all elders are to be able to teach, according to Paul. And so these are the shepherds and teachers of the church, and it's an ongoing office. These groups, the apostles, the New Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophets for that matter, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, these are God's gift to the church to help it grow to adulthood, spiritual adulthood. When I was a young man, if there was an arrogant, young, good-looking man, and because of his arrogance, we would say he thinks he's God's gift to women. And so it's with some great reluctance that I say to you what I think Paul is saying here is that the elders of the church are God's gift to the church. <laughs> but we are humbled by the word of God because it also makes sure, and there's a reminder in 1 Corinthians 3, a reminder to all elders that it's all a gift and we didn't earn any of it and it's not based on our own ability or personality or anything. It's because of Christ's calling. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Every time I preach the word on a Sunday morning, I pray fervently before I come into the pulpit for the Holy Spirit to work in you through his word and make me just a vehicle of getting his word through the Spirit to you so that the Holy Spirit and the word together can grow you spiritually to adulthood, to full development as a believer. Paul is emphasizing here how crucial it is for the church to be built to maturity by the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. But I want you to notice what Paul says is the purpose of the preaching and teaching of the Word that happens in the, in the true church. He says it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I don't want you to miss the importance of what he's saying there. We are to grow to adulthood. We are to grow to maturity, which is full Christ-likeness, not just as individuals, but as a church, that we are to represent Christ well in our character, our mindset, our, our understanding of Scripture, and the way we serve and love one another, and the way we serve the world. We don't want to be childish. If we don't greatly value the ministry of the teaching and preaching of the word of God, then we will remain as a church spiritually childish, as he warned earlier. I want to read from Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 14, because it talks about a childish church. It says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
The word of God is given to you for that so that you may no longer be childish. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. It's from the very mouth of God. It is inerrant. It is fully trustworthy. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But again, I want to point out to you the purpose of the preaching and teaching of the word, the purpose of my calling, particularly my calling, is to equip you to do the work of ministry. We have a lot of misnomers in the church, and one of those misnomers is to call somebody in my position a minister. Because I want you to notice there, who, who's the minister? I'm the equipper. You're the ministers. My job, my calling from God is to equip you to do the work of ministry. Through the use of the gifts that God has given you in the opportunities where he's placed you, the context in which he's placed you, you are the ministers of the church. Now, I understand that as a equipper, sometimes I lead and should many times lead by example and mentor by example, but my primary call is to equip you in a knowledge and understanding of the word of God so that you can go out and do the work of ministry. That's your calling. And the relative health and maturity of Oakwood is seen in how hungry our members are for the word of God and how diligent they are students of the word of God and how actively they're using their gifts and serving in light of that foundation in their lives. When I came to Oakwood, uh, I was candidating actually at Oakwood, which means I was being interviewed and studying, learning about the church, meeting people in the church, and they were getting to know me to decide whether God was calling me to come here to be a pastor. One of the things that drew me most to the church, there's a lot of things that drew me here, what made me want to come here. One of the things that drew me most was that this church had been without a pastor, and we didn't have any associate pastors back then. We had a, 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 a part-time uh, interim pastor, but there was, there, was not, there was no pastoral staff here at the time. Been over a year, I believe, since the, 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 the former pastor was here. But as I got to know the church, everybody was serving. Not everybody, but the, I was just amazed at that. The elders were serving well, and... The members, the ministries of the church were still going on pretty much as, as normal. And to me, that was an extremely positive sign. I said, I can work with this team because they're already committed to using their gifts and serving. And I think it's been one of the strengths of this church from day one when I first came here is that we do see most of our members serving in some way. And that's beautiful. Christ will harmonize that, orchestrate that to create more and more beauty in this church. We pray that it'll continue. Paul summarizes the whole thing, and I'll close with this in verses 15 and 16. This is just the summary of his whole point in this passage. He says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love when each part is working properly. And that's everything we've been talking about this morning. What does it mean for you to work properly as a member, an active member in the body of Christ, with Christ as the head, with the goal of being built up, the body itself being built up in love? But I want to close with just focusing on that one beautiful phrase that shows up elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. What's interesting is in the original language, the word there is truthing the love, truthing in love, truthing in love, not speaking the truth in love, although speaking is certainly a, a good 
application of that. As a matter of fact, speaking is part of what the word truthing means, to speak the truth. It's part of it. But it's a more general term than that, to live by the truth, to love the truth, to adhere to the truth, to, to promote the truth in many different ways. And so I like that as a, as a calling to the church, a, a, an exhortation to the church. Go out there and be truthing in love. Everything you do, every, all day long, be truthing in love. Yes, sharing the truth verbally, but living the truth and loving people. Do everything in love. And this is, to me, a very simple definition of what a healthy church looks like. Heavy emphasis on truth and a heavy emphasis on loving one another. We've seen that over and over again in Ephesians. That's what a healthy church looks like. John Stott said, he wrote in one of his books, he said, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it isn't strengthened by truth. I know I've encountered quite a few churches in my life that are very strong in truth, but very weak in love. And I've encountered some that are very strong in loving, caring for and serving one another, but very weak in truth. Truth and love need to be emphasized equally strongly because that's what a healthy church looks like. Our superpower as Christians is that ability to truth and love by the grace of God and the gifting that he gives us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for equipping us. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for those who have faithfully taught the elders and pastors who have faithfully taught the word of God and sermons and worship services and Bible studies and Sunday school classes. And Lord, just thank you that that foundation of truth has been built here over a very period of time and we are continuing to build upon it. And Lord, I pray that you'll enable the leadership here and every member here to do all that we can to protect that foundation, to keep it strong in the truth. But Lord, help us also to continue and more deeply learn to love one another that we might show the effect that truth has by the working of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what Jesus said, that they will know who we are by the way we are, that we are his disciples by the way we love one another. But Lord, we proclaim him, and we proclaim the Jesus that is revealed to us in the scriptures. Help us to be faithful to that calling and to use our gifts well. We pray in Christ's name, Christ's name amen. Let's conclude our